So, say yes. Say yes. Again, we can't thank you enough for all of the volunteers, especially being in charge of the worship ministry here at Hershey Free. Um, It is a pure joy that I do not have to lead every Sunday. It really is a blessing. And so I know that there are more of you out there that can serve in totally different ways. And again, we wouldn't be able to do what we do without you. So if you are wanting to serve, finding out a way to serve, please check with the, the hub out front. I'm pretty sure that's what we call it. I work here, I should know. Good morning, I'm Pastor Bob Karwalski. I'm the pastor for the worship ministries here at Hershey Free. Um, if you are joining us online, we're so thankful that you're with us. And I want to just give you a heads up as you are at home. We're going to take communion a little bit later. And so if you want to get those elements ready so you don't have to scramble towards the end, uh, have to find crackers and juice or whatever it will be. Um, yeah. So if you want to do that. All right. You all ready? All right. We're going to be in Matthew 18 this morning, verses 23 through 25, and we're going to be going through a parable, and we're going to talk about forgiveness and our responsibility with that. Jesus was a phenomenal teacher. A teacher in the New Testament, also known as a rabbi, crafted stories to keep their listeners engaged rather than give a lecture about some theological attribute or argument. So this morning, I am going to give somewhat of a lecture, and I'm going to go case by case of why we need to trust Jesus, what he's talking about, and explaining through. But in the first century, a teacher would engage their listener with stories. It is important to note the differences in our worlds when it comes to teaching. Gary Burge He's a New Testament scholar. He wrote this book called Jesus, the Middle Eastern Storyteller. I am going to basically regurgitate everything that I've learned from this book this morning. So if you want to get a better, quote-unquote, sermon, just read this. But he does a great job, and even in his commentary of the parable that we're going to go through, uh, cross-referencing everything, it was just easy to read and understand. I was like, I'm just going to just repeat, not plagiarize, but repeat what he is saying. He says that we believe that religious speakers are effective when they can string out large arguments to defend their points when they can persuade by force of argument. This for us is theological sophistication. So in our context, that is true, but in the first century, it was completely different. And there's a lot of evidence with these rabbis telling stories, not just picking apart the scripture. So in Jesus' time, great teachers were known for the number of students that followed them or the crowds that they would attract, not by the number of books they wrote. They really didn't even write books. Their students would write books for them. Jesus had 12 followers at first, but that grew up to 70. And he spoke to large crowds. We know the instances of 4,000, 5,000. These were in part recorded 
to show how famous Jesus was at his time. And he got the crowd to hang on every word. In his first teaching in his hometown of Nazareth, Luke records the crowd was amazed, and then it was stunned, and then it was furious, and then it wanted to stone him. He was able to move crowds to action, right? I mean, to say the least. But he was able to do so with his stories. Jesus would take an everyday image and craft it into a timeless truth. And we know these as parables. A third of Jesus' teaching came in parables. As Dave mentioned last week, a parable is an illustrative story or word picture that creates an image or contrast for the listener. Parables could even have gross exaggeration, ridiculous comparisons, humor, puns, and drama to make a point. Look at Matthew 23, verse 24. Jesus says, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Now, this isn't a parable. He's talking to teachers of his, age, of, of, of his day and how they would so focus on the little minutia like law and all of the details about it, but they would forget the major points of like forgiveness and mercy and justice. It's exaggeration in comparison, right? Nat, camel. But Jesus was clever. In the Aramaic, the word for gnat is galma, G-A-L-M-A. And the word for camel is gamla, G-A-M-L-A. So it would read, you strain out a galma, but you swallow a gamla. The listener in this context would see that and see it like the wittiness of it, but it would also be so memorable. He used everyday images to make a point, and he would capture their attention. So we need to put on that similar, we need to put on similar glasses. We need to what we will do is we will miss the punchline, so to speak, of some of these parables if we look through our own 21st century glasses or lenses to try and read them. So, please hear me. I'm not saying this in an arrogant way or implying that only some of us are educated to interpret Scripture. I simply want to open our eyes to eliminate the confusion that can come with reading these stories. Another example is in Matthew, or sorry, Luke chapter 9, verses 59 through 60. He, being Jesus, said to another man, follow me. But he, the man, replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, when I first read this, and I literally interpret it, I had more questions about Jesus and his teaching. It was off-putting to me. Why would he say this to this man? But if we put on our first century lenses, so to speak, we'll see that the man is using a manufactured excuse 
And what I mean by that is it's like when somebody asks you to dinner or over to a, their house to get together and you would say, you know what, I need to check my schedule first or I need to check with my spouse or oh, we might have plans. I'm sure nobody in this room is guilty of doing that. But if we look at this man's excuse, it's not even a good one. (laughs) What it means in the Greek to bury one's father is that the man is appealing to his duty to remain at home until his father dies, he's not dead yet, and then is buried, and then he can make decisions for himself. So the listener of this story would understand exactly what was going on, and they would recognize it as the excuse, and they would see Jesus' response and cancel it immediately, because that's what he does. He he denies its use and says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So now it makes sense, right? So now let's enter the scene or the context of our parable in Matthew. I want to go back a couple of verses into verses 21 and, and 22 to set up why Jesus goes into this parable. Peter asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, why seven? Well, in the rabbinic law, there was kind of just this code that people would forgive up to three times. Whatever reason, I don't know. But three times, like three was the number. So Peter here, in like most cases, is trying to be like, you know, brown noser or sucking up to Jesus and doubling the number and adding one for good measure. Seven, we'll say seven. But Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, it doesn't mean actually 77. In the Greek, it's 70 times seven, so it would be 490, technically. But Jesus isn't making the point to be literally 490 times. He's saying forgiveness should be unlimited. Now, I want to make one little caveat here. If you are in an abusive relationship at home, at school, at work, whatever the case might be, Jesus, nor in, any ex- in, in, in any aspect of Scripture, is not saying you need to stay in that relationship and continually forgive. There is a way in which we approach someone who has sinned against us. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus gives us instructions. But please hear me clearly. I'm not saying you were to stay in an abusive relationship. You were to get help. Moving on, the, the, the listeners in this context would understand that number as like no limit. If you go back to Genesis chapter 4, you see this same thing happen. Lamech is a descendant of Cain. He says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Again, 490. Here we see And what would be common, again, to the listener, you're going to hear me say that a lot. It's going to be common to the listener. That revenge was not 
just normal. It was legitimate and it was to be expected. Burge says that the reason was not simply to return anger for anger, but to correct the imagined harm someone has done to our property, our self-worth, our standing, or our standing in the community. Revenge was normal. Here's examples. You know the saying, eye for an eye. Genesis chapter 34, verse 25, Simeon and Levi kill all the men in the city of Shechem to avenge the attack and rape of their sister Dinah. In Judges 16, Samson kills a number of Philistines and destroys the pagan temple to avenge the loss of his eyes. 2 Samuel chapter 13, Absalom kills his brother Amon for the raping of his half-sister Tamar. This all makes sense as to why there were cities of refuge in the Old Testament. We have to remember that our legal and court systems are different today. So to prevent an unwarranted revenge, a person could take refuge in a declared city while accusations were sifted through to determine what the truth was. Otherwise, the cycle of revenge would ultimately just rip Israel apart. So with that said, there are still teachings throughout Scripture to refrain from honor-seeking revenge. Leviticus 19, 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Proverbs 24, 29, do not say, I, I'll do to them as they have done to me, or I'll pay them back for what they did. Matthew 6, 12, and this will be kind of the theme of the morning, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. In Matthew 5, chapter uh, 39, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So now, enter Jesus, and we see him pointing out to the disciples and followers that we will be known for our unlimited forgiveness. In a sense, he's reversing or balancing the culture of revenge of Israel. So follow along as I read the parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to get to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had a man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. 
Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So let's go through the text. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. In this context, the listener would equate the king to Herod Antipas, Antipas, Herod Antipas, I keep wanting to say Antipas, it's not Antipas, Antipas of Rome. And he was, he was a harsh king, um, hard pressed to find money in the kingdom. So that's what they would know. As he began, uh, verse 24, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. So this man, in other texts it says this servant, uh, he was likely a financial minister or a regional governor or a tax farmer, a.k.a. tax collector. This position was competitive because of the power and the wealth that came with it. So how they would get started was they would make a bid to the king. So this man made a bid to the king at some point. And he would pay, and, uh, pay what he pledged. So the story is most likely not about a personal debt, but it was about a tax revenue owed. This is the system the listeners would know and understand. However, the 10,000 bags of gold, and in some versions it refers to them as talents, would be an absurd and humorous amount of money. In the Greek, the word myriad is used for this number, and it, and it means beyond number. It is literally the largest number in the Greek. So these people would hear this, and it would be funny because the man pledged something he was never able to do. Moving on, verse 25. Since he was not able to pay the master, or since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So, now even with the sale of his wife, or himself, his wife, his children, and all of their assets, it would take about, if we calculate it, because we can calculate the number, 250,000 years of work to pay off the debt. So, all that said, the man's situation is hopeless. At this, the servant fell on his knees, chapter, uh, verse 26, before him and said, Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Again, he can't pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. In other versions, took pity is also felt compassion. This can sound familiar for, for, if you're familiar with the text or the teachings of Jesus. In Matthew 9, 36, Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the crowds. Um, later on in Matthew, being moved with the same emotion, compassion, he feeds the crowds of 5,000 and 4,000. The Good Samaritan, 
has that same reaction when he sees the man on the roadside. So that's giving you a little bit of a, a tell as to the heart. So the king in the story, in this context, acts in such of an out-of-left-field kind of way. He shows mercy and forgiveness of the debt and then releases the man from prison. What the listener would know is more so from like Herod Antipas, it's not, it's not the kind of king they're used to. But I want to go over a quick note here. There's a difference between mercy and grace. And I know you know that. We all know that. There's different definitions. But oftentimes we like use them interchangeably. And I will always remember this because this is what my youth pastor taught us. Well, technically he was picking on two brothers in our youth group because they were kind of the ones that would always get in trouble. He, he would always ask them out loud when one of them wasn't paying attention, what's the difference between grace and mercy? And in a parable fashion, the answer was, mercy is something you don't get that you do deserve, whereas grace is something you get that you don't deserve. Parables work. Like, I remember that to this day. If Nick was here, I would encourage him, like, you know, youth group kids do remember things. But Jesus is using the king in this parable to represent the kind of king his father is. He's a different king than the listener would know and be used to. As we move on, we need to be aware of the tax collection or tax system at work. In times of forgiveness, it would work its way down through the provinces so that they could recover and not be drained of resources. Burge says, when taxes were forgiven by Rome, there was a universal understanding that if Caesar was not being paid, so too lower levels of government tax clients in the empire should likewise return tax relief to the debtors. So this is where our story takes a turn. Verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins and he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Like we just heard, that the debt should be relieved the man takes a different approach. In this instant, the fellow servant owes him 100 silver coins. Now, this is literally millions times less than what the man owed the king. But the more offensive part for the audience was not that it lacked mercy, but it was that the man placed in prison a man who owed the king money. So ultimately, it would be viewed as being disloyal to the king. Moving on, verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and, began, and, and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. It sounds familiar. Again, Jesus is such a great teacher in using comparison, right? He goes through a debt in both stories, consequences in both situations, an appeal, and then a resolution. But the resolution is different. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. 
When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. So it's not surprising when the servants go and report this to the king because they were like the tax farmer at a different region. Or they were one of his fellow kind of governors of collecting taxes. So they don't want the same thing to happen to them. Then in verse 32, the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Burge says, it's incorrect to think that the king is motivated simply by the hypocrisy he finds in the ungrateful servant. The servant was released on the assumption that he would continue to serve faithfully and later address the issue of debt. But the man showed the king that he was unfaithful and had no regard for the financial well-being of the king. Did you catch that? So in this story, the man's position was taken and no longer a tax farmer, and he would have to repay the debt as a slave in prison. And this is how my heavenly father, verse 35, will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, not every parable ends with an application, but Jesus brings home this point. If you abuse God's forgiveness, you've not been affected by its power nor understand what it means to be forgiven. Jesus is giving us the example of what the kingdom of heaven is to look like on earth. He was calling for his disciples, his followers, us, to be an agent of blessing and not an agent of revenge. Now, I'll be honest, this is hard for me. And from what I can tell, it's hard for our culture too. We feel the need to correct the imagined harm someone has done to our property, our self-worth, our standing in the community or among our friends, right? But this is where God is calling us to be different. We need to be agents of forgiveness because we are mirrored examples of the man in the parable. We owe a great debt. We are sinful by nature. And that debt was greatly forgiven on the cross through Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. So how do we do this? I think one of the first steps that we can do is practice the spiritual discipline of silence. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, says, one of the fruits of silence is the freedom to let God be our justifier. It's taking the control out of our hands and leaving it to God. It's so hard to do. You can ask people that, we, that I work with, I love, like, I don't, I don't try to pay back somebody. I try to win. 
I have done countless stupid things. <laughs> I'll give you an example. I remember when I first started working here, I was the, uh, I was the, oh man, it was such a weird title. It was the worship leader, worship coordinator for the youth or something like that. I was like, why can't I just be the worship leader of the youth group? Anyway, I remember uh, getting into a Facebook argument or debate, it was really petty, but with a, a student over one of the great age-old questions, who's better, the Steelers or the Eagles? And which is obviously easy. <laughs> Just look at the Super Bowls. Anyway, I remember getting ba- going back and forth, right? And then I was with a family, uh, one, of the, one of the students, good friends, um, and the dad said to me, hey, I noticed on Facebook you got in this argument. Did you win? And I was like, oh, I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, just went back and forth. I thought, like, did you have fun doing that? I was like, and at that, mo- that moment, I realized, I look like an idiot. <laughs> it was so petty. But I was so heated in the moment because I had to defend this team that I don't even play for, Right? Are what we say matters? Matthew, um, uh, Matthew twelve thirty four. Jesus says, for, "For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of." Right? What we point ourselves at is what we reflect. Just think of it like this: what our hearts are full of. Like, just think of a mirror. What you point that at is what it's going to reflect. Our mouth will speak. So what you point your heart at, what you reflect is what you worship. If you are letting God be in control of that, because he's going to win all of those arguments of imagined self-harm more than your words or your actions are going to win. And I think just looking around in our culture, looking at the Facebook arguments that you see, looking the ways that we promote ourselves sometimes is not the way that Jesus imagined. That's not the kingdom of heaven. That's not being a first fruit of the kingdom of heaven. He wanted to let us, let him do it. So how do you do this? Well, you've got to practice it, right? Um, this last year, uh, last couple of years, my boys have gotten into baseball. And it's kind of brought me back into baseball along with the uh, changing of the rules of baseball. Like it's fun to watch now with the pitch count and stuff. Um, And so my boys have gotten really good at baseball. It's been fun. They both won uh, the championship of their divisions this year. They both made all-stars. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go join the Hershey Free softball team. I love baseball. I'm athletic. Like, my boys can do this. I can do this. And I'm good at watching them and picking apart, like, what they do wrong and be like, all right, you know, bringing up the Instagram little teaching. Like, you know, these you follow accounts and guys will give you tips, right? 
I'm like, all right, here's what we'll do, and we'll work with them down in the basement. Turn your hips through first, keep your head down, like all of this stuff. I'm like, I'm gonna go play baseball with the Hershey Free Team. And so the first, well, no, second, second time out, I remember I put Jason, uh, her, put me in center field, in which was the last time I played center field. And uh, my boys are there, and we're playing Calvary out in Lancaster, but we're down in Marietta. And we are, like, nobody is there. But Calvary, no offense to Calvary, brings small groups in a cheering section. And I'm thinking, we're in the middle of Marietta. Nobody is here. Why in the world are people watching a bunch of old men play softball? So, first inning, I'm in the outfield. I'm like, all right, let's go. And the ball's hit right to me. And I'm thinking, all right, I've told the boys this multiple times. When you're in the outfield, your first instinct is to run back, not forward. What do I do? I run forward. Ball goes over my head. I proceed to do that three more times. <laughs> and on the fifth time, I actually caught the ball. But as I'm running, like one of those times, I'm running into the infield, right? Nobody, you know, nobody's supposed to be here. And my 10-year-old on the left is like, Dad! You're supposed to catch the ball. And I'm thinking, (laughs) yep, yep, I know that. I know that. In front of all of these people that I don't know. I'm like, gosh, okay. So then I get up to bat. I'm like, it's softball, right? This is awesome. Ball just gets lobbed to you. The first swing, miss. And you just hear the audible groan of everybody like, oh. And I'm like, darn it. And then it happens again. I strike out, and my son's like, Dad, you're supposed to hit the ball. And I'm like, yep, I know that. And we get home. This is the best. We get home, and my, my wife's like, how did it go, babe? I'm like, ah, it went all right. We won one, lost one. And, and, and my younger son on the right, he will always tell you the truth. He goes, yeah, but, but Mom, we're better than Dad. <laughs> I'm like, well, you're not wrong there. We can be like, what do they call it, Monday morning quarterbacks. We can analyze, we can watch. But unless you go and do it and practice it, you're never going to be good at it. Francis Chan says this. He's like, I love this example. He says, if I tell my kids I want them to go clean their room, I don't want them coming back five minutes later saying, hey, Dad, we did this word study on what it means to clean our rooms. Well, did you clean your rooms? No. But next week, we're going to get together with 10 of our friends and have a study on what it means to clean our rooms. It's like, I don't want you to do that. I want you to go clean your room. Sometimes we can get so specific. We can analyze each other, and we can pick apart what we're doing wrong. But unless we practice it ourselves... Because that's what Jesus is asking us to be, these agents of forgiveness. Unless we practice it ourselves, we're not doing what he asked us to do. Another way that we can practice this is through the spiritual discipline of communion. You're going to see the the tables are set up, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come out, and they're going to lead us in a song. But this morning, we're going to practice communion in a way where we're going we're to do it by sections like we've done in the past. 
where I'm going to ask somebody or two people to go and pass the elements out to your section. Like we are serving one another. But I want you to be reminded of how communion is a time that empowers us to forgive. It should empower us because it should remind us of the great act of forgiveness that we were shown and are now to show the world. Gordon Smith writes this, if participation in the Lord's Supper does not foster a capacity to see and act with courage, integrity, love, and justice in the world, then the holy meal is in danger of becoming nothing more than a form of communal self-indulgence. It must be an event that turns us back to a thoughtful and courageous engagement with the world. So, the band is going to play a song on your mercy, his mercy. Reflect on the words, sing along. I'm going to ask whoever is going to come to, to pass out the elements. Prepare your hearts and minds. But in this moment, be reminded of the forgiveness that was shown to you and how you are to reflect that to the world.